Amen. You may be seated. Today is our sixth message on the Nicene Creed. The part of the Creed we're exploring today, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. I'd like to read a couple of texts related to that first. A very vivid picture from the prophecy of Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. There was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came, up, came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I'll place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I've spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And from John's Gospel... Jesus speaking to his 11, now that Judas has gone out. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Send the breath. Send the Spirit now, Lord, as we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. So, how far do you have to read in the Bible before you meet the Holy Spirit? Scripture. 
I don't know how many verses there are in the Bible. I should have looked that up this week. But you only have to get to verse 2 in the entire Bible before you meet the Holy Spirit. Because there's this really kind of language-defying scene there in verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. Just seconds earlier, in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. And basically what that means is he just willed the heavens and the earth into existence. There's God. Now there's this thing we call creation. And in verse 2, we learn that at first, the earth, the world as we know it, is this kind of watery, formless emptiness. It's kind of this dark, shapeless void. And there's this kind of fearfully awesome thing that we're told in that silent, dark, watery emptiness. We are told God is breathing. The Hebrew word is ruach. The ruach, R-U-A-C-H, if you want to get the English transliteration. The ruach of God is hovering. It is brooding. It is moving over the dark surface of the waters. His ruach is moving like wind, like mighty rushing wind with unimaginable power, unimaginable love that then brings forth as his breath speaks, it brings forth, as you know, this three-story three house of skies and seas and the land. And as that house is built by his breath, it is just teeming with creatures in the skies and seas and land. And I just want to let that scene in verse 2 of the Bible, I just want to let that picture of God's breathing. He, he breathes. He, he, he spirates, we could say. And as a result of his breathing, there's this home full of life. I just want to let that picture kind of linger. And I, I want to ask what that might tell us about God himself and what it might show us about God's activity in our world. And I want to begin today with the mystery of the Spirit, the mystery of the Spirit. It's got to be significant that the first description of God in the Bible is God breathing. The very first time we meet God, this description of him involves his breath. And of course, in the Ezekiel text we just read, you, you see the breath again. Breath must matter. And if you think about breath, you, it makes you immediately think about something that every one of us in this room is experiencing right this second, and we will experience it throughout our entire lives, every moment of our lives, and that is the reality that breath is life. Breath is life. If a breathing creature stops breathing, the creature dies because breath is life. When you breathe your last, and that last puff of carbon dioxide leaves your lungs, the whole spirited part of you will be gone. And all that will be left of you is a pile of decaying matter, which is kind of a jarring thing to say. And it's why standing in a casket is so jarring, because somehow the breath is gone and therefore life is gone. And what you're looking at is just not this person as you knew him or her. But what is interesting to notice about our breathing is that what we breathe, obviously, comes from outside of us. 
your life, my life, is absolutely dependent on something that is not us in that sense. If your environment around you does not give you your life breath, you're finished. If all of a sudden all the oxygen got sucked out of this room and you had an environment that didn't give you anything to breathe, we'd all just start toppling over. That is how we experience breath, and we always will until we breathe our last. And it is here that we can see, I absolutely love Fred Sanders' work on this and his new book on the Holy Spirit, which you get a chance to pick it up and read it. It's just marvelous. Here we see a very basic difference between God's breath, God's ruach, and our breath. God's ruach in Genesis is what gives life to everything. God breathes and the cosmos is formed and then it is filled and the creatures who fill it are animated. You guys know that word animate? Actually, you know, when you take a little cartoon on the screen and you find a way to make it look like it's moving, you have animated it. What it means is you've given it spirit, you've given it breath. It's become a living thing, as it were. And God takes these creatures that he fills the world with and he animates them. He breathes life into them. So here's my question for you guys. What gives God his breath? What gives God his breath? And you know the answer. What is it? God gives God his breath. <laughs> That's why God is completely different from any of us. God's ruach, God's spirit, God's breath is in and from himself. God's breath is not something from outside of his being. God's breath, his spirit, his ruach, is just the fullness of life in his own being. God doesn't get life from outside of himself. He has all life in and from himself, as our confession of faith says. And we can say a little bit more about this mystery of the spirit as we think about Genesis. In that early uh, part of Genesis, God's ruach is, as we said, it builds a home. It builds a, a, a home in which all of these living things can actually live. And I think that too, maybe shows us a little something about God's life in himself. Because we've already learned in the uh, Nicene Creed, and of course in the Bible more importantly, that God exists in lively relationship within himself, right? That the, God the Father eternally begets God the Son, and God the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. There's this remarkable love that exists within God as Father and Son, and God the Ruach, God the Spirit, we could say, is the boundless, timeless, unchanging love in which the Father and Son live. You could think of the Spirit as the home in which God lives, the, the love, the home in which he lives. God, what I'm trying to say, and I don't really have a way to describe it in ways we can totally understand because it's beyond our understanding. God is his own environment. God is his own habitation. God is his own home. He, as it were, creates his own home and his own life within himself. Create, create is the wrong word because it sounds like it's kind of beginning. It has no beginning. It's eternal. It's timeless. It's boundless. It's unchanging. God is his own life and his own home. I love the way Fred Sanders puts this in his book, The Deep Things of God. The boundless, you've heard this before, the boundless life, boundless life that God lives in himself at home within the happy land of the Trinity, above all worlds, it's perfect. And I want to read a little something from his more recent book that'll expand this for us a little bit, just to try to think about God. He says, God having his own fully divine spirit, his ruach, 
his breath. This means he does not exist in the middle of some extrinsic environment or atmosphere that he draws his life from. God is all he needs. God will never say to a creature, you complete me. No matter how much he loves that creature. Love that is divine doesn't work that way. Because love that is divine is already complete. The triune God, though absolutely one, is not personally solitary. We can see this most obviously by considering the, the eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit in which there is no empty space for loneliness or isolation. God is not lonely. That's not why he made the world. To put it as positively as possible, God is blessed, eternally sufficient to himself, delighting in the love and light that make the divine life. That's God satisfied in himself. If there had never been a creation, that's God at home in himself, in the ruach of his love. Now, I wanted to begin with that, that mystery, and those mysteries are glorious to ponder. We should think about them more. But I still want you to notice that the first time we meet God the Holy Spirit in the Bible, it is not in a, kind of an encyclopedia entry about how life is in God. The first time we meet the Spirit, it is in this image of God's breath his ruach, rushing out toward creation. And so because of, who God's, because of who God the ruach, God the spirit, is in God's life, it is fitting that the spirit has particular missions in God's creation. And that's what I want to turn attention to now. So we thought for a minute about the mystery of the spirit, something we actually can't fully understand, God the spirit in the life of God himself. But now I want to just briefly touch on the missions of the Spirit, beginning with this breath rushing out to, to create the world. And, and that is the first mission. Quite obviously, the very first mission of the Holy Spirit is that he gives life. It is unmissable in, Gen in Genesis chapter 1 that all life in the past, in the present, in the future, all life is the gift of God's Ruach. It is the gift of God's Spirit. Things have being, they continue to have being, and all this will be true till the end of time. Everything that lives has its life from God the Holy Spirit. That three-story home of the skies, seas, and lands, God breathed it into existence by His Spirit. Every creature and all those multitudes of creatures who inhabit that home, the Spirit brought them forth. And it's interesting when you look at the creation of man. You remember that story? God forms man, ha-adam, the Adam, the man. He forms Adam out of what? Dirt, out of the ground. And then what does he do? Here's the image again. He breathes into him life. The ruach of God fills ha-adam, the man, and animates not just his physical life, but his mental life, his emotional life, his volitional life, his relational life, all those wonderful parts about the human being that can relate to God as well as the world and to other people as well as the world, God breathes all that into Adam. And all of life for all time is the Lord's to withdraw by withholding his spirit or to renew by sending forth his spirit. And we get this in Psalm 104. The psalmist says to God, when you hide your face, the creatures of earth are dismayed. When you take away their breath, their ruach, 
they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your ruach, your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. All life for all time is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is why, of course, at the very end of the Psalter, we hear those words, let everything that has breath praise the Lord because the Spirit gives life. I wonder, this is speculation, but I wonder if that explains that fact that when you're out in nature and you are around living, breathing things, this is the gift of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if that is part of the reason why Christian spirituality throughout the centuries has always had this impulse to leave the city and go out into the wildness of nature. Why? Because we're romantics who think somehow like nature is God? No, not at all. But it's interesting to think about, you know, the city, it's a, it's a good thing as far as it goes. It can give the shelter of a home. It can give the love bonds of a home. But the thing that is a bit of a problem about cities or any human-made things is that these can become ways in which we fantasize that we are insulating ourselves from the breath of the Lord. We don't really need God. We don't even think about God. And we can kind of drown out his voice. We don't have to encounter his glory. When you are out in the world of living, breathing things, there is a very real sense in which you are encountering a gift of the Holy Spirit you will never get in one of your boxes that humans have made. But the second mission of the Spirit is that he restrains sin. This is so important. So after human rebellion, God's holy ruach has got another mission, and that is, as sinners are busy sinning, to preserve creation's goodness and to restrain the evil of human sin. Do you know why, brothers and sisters, sinners are not monsters? Now listen, we're Reformed Christians, and that means that deep in our theology is this thing we call total depravity. We believe that every single part of human beings has been corrupted by sin. And sinner, sin is very, very bad, and sinners are very, very bad. But it is very important, along with that, to also understand that the reason why even people who do not worship God, they don't serve God, they don't love God, and yet, many, many, many non-Christians, non-believers, non-worshippers, you will find, and you should tell your kids this, and I'll say why in a second, you will find these people are wonderfully moral. They're often wonderfully wise, sometimes wiser than the people you find inside the church. They're often very religious. Why is that? Why don't they just become utterly depraved? Because of the Holy Spirit. God says in Genesis 6, as human beings are ramping up their evil, he says, my spirit, my ruach, is not, I mean, it's not clear which we, way we should translate it. It will not abide with man forever or will not strive with man forever. It, it amounts kind of to the same thing. God shortens human life spans because he says, if, if humans get too uppity, I'll just withdraw my spirit and they will die. <laughs> and while they live, my spirit will strive against their sin to, to keep it in check so that there is still much good that remains, it's not good that will reconcile them to God and, you know, merit eternal life, but it is on the earth, there's so much goodness, and we should tell our kids that because I've, I grew up in a, in a church context where we were taught that people outside of, you know, Christianity were just like, 
you know, you, you kind of imagine them all, they all had fangs. And then, you know, the problem is you get kids that leave, you know, these comfortable little church ghettos and they go out in the world and discover that actually some of these people out there in the world are more moral, more, have, seem to have more wisdom, and even sometimes are more religiously fervent than the people they left behind in the church and they just think they've been lied to. We should teach our kids, expect to find the grace of the Holy Spirit, if I can put it that way, among even those who don't worship God because the Holy Spirit withstands human sin and sustains everything in sinners that still inclines toward God, however perverted their understanding of God might be. Humans have this, theologians call this a seed of religion that the Holy Spirit maintains. Now, they may worship false gods and pervert the you know, understanding of God in all kinds of ways, but they have this impulse to worship because the Spirit sustains that. One, one f- word that theologians have used to try to describe this is common grace. There's grace that saves people, but there's also just common grace that continues to sustain wisdom and, and often a great deal of moral goodness among even those who have no interest whatsoever in God. So the Spirit gives life, He restrains sin. Well, time goes on, and there's a third mission, quite obviously, and that is, eventually, the Holy Spirit empowers the Christ, the Savior. And there's that wonderful language at the beginning of Luke. You remember this? Even as the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God, hovered over that watery void at creation, the angel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ruach, is going to overshadow your womb. And the Holy Spirit brings forth in Mary's womb, that watery void within her, as it were, a new man, a man without sin, And with every step in the life of Jesus, our Savior, the Holy Spirit is with him, sustaining him in obedience against all the odds, sustaining him in horrific sufferings of body and soul, sustaining him ultimately through the the horror of the cross. I don't remember who said this, but I heard once, the Holy Spirit was Jesus' true friend, with him throughout his life to sustain him, to obey the Father perfectly for us, to bear the wrath of God for our sins and somehow be upheld under such a horror. And of course, in the end, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And wow, now it's all different because now we have a new man who by the power of the Holy Spirit cannot die, has passed through death into life that is deathless. And this new man is able to unleash that spirit who raised him from the dead upon the whole creation. That's what Ezekiel, in a way, is describing. He's describing something that's going to happen in Israel's life, but that is a picture of God renewing all of creation by the Holy Spirit in the end. And that brings us to the fourth and last mission, which is happening in this room even right now. The Holy Spirit gives life, restrains sin, empowers Christ, and indwells believers. So having empowered God the Son... In his mission from the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ruach, is sent forth then to open up human hearts to the Father and the Son. Now, in the John text that we read, Jesus says that mission of the Holy Spirit, to go open up hearts, to receive the Son, to receive the Savior, and to become children of God, the Father, Jesus says that moving of the Spirit, that mission of the Spirit, is going to start with the apostles preaching. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, to you. And when he comes through your preaching, he is going to issue a three-count indictment of these world powers that killed God's Son, the Messiah. 
He's going to indict them that they have sinned because they don't believe in Jesus. He's going to indict them that it is Jesus' disciples who are the righteous ones because Jesus has gone to the Father to be their advocate. And he's going to indict them that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that old serpent, the prince of this world, was judged. He will convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment by the preaching of the apostles. But you'll notice in verse 12, Jesus says more. That'll be the first wave of the Spirit's work in the preaching of the apostles. But in time, he says, there's a whole bunch of stuff I can't tell you right now. You're not ready for it. The Spirit's going to do that. In time, the Holy Spirit will reveal more. And he will guide Jesus' apostles, Jesus tells them, into all the truth. The whole reality of what God has done through Christ. And they will eventually record that in their writings. They will become, those writings become what we call the New Testament. And so that's the promise. And it's interesting that Jesus then goes to the cross and he rises from the dead and he meets with his disciples at the end of John's gospel. And there's this really crazy moment when he comes to the, these apostles who are going to go out now and preach the good news. And he breathes on them. And what does he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is just a little foreshock of a mighty rushing ruach that pours down from heaven on the day of Pentecost. And it's never stopped because to this very day, you guys are experiencing this right now. I'm preaching the good news to you. And as the gospel goes forth in the world, whether in the church or outside the church, we have the promise of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, the Ruach of God, is working through the word. And as people hear the good news that Jesus has taken away our sin and God is for us and their hearts are opened up and they receive Jesus and they receive the Father, they begin, as Paul says, to call Jesus Lord by the Holy Spirit. Fred, Fred Sanders says, the Holy Spirit makes that sayable. Jesus is Lord. And something else, they begin to call God, what? Abba. And that too is possible only by the working of the Holy Spirit. When you are able to say, Jesus is Lord, he's the king. Everything, God's whole plan to set the world right is going to happen through him. And you say, God is my father. That is the work of the Ruach. That is what the Holy Spirit does. In believing hearts by the Spirit, Jesus says earlier in John's gospel, the Father and the Son make their home. Somebody once called the Holy Spirit the divine homemaker. He makes our hearts a home for Jesus and the Father. And that, of course, is what we see described here at the end of this text that we read in Ezekiel in, in, in uh, chapter 37, verse 14, the first part of it. God promises, I'll put my ruach, my spirit, within you, and you shall live. Now I want to just wrap up by asking this question. We've looked at the mystery of the Spirit, the missions of the Spirit. Here I want to wrap up with this. What then do Spirit-filled Christians look like? Are you a Spirit-filled Christian? If you're not Spirit-filled, you're not a Christian. <laughs> Everyone who has Jesus has the Spirit. But what does a Spirit-filled Christian look like? I grew up in churches that had a very particular picture of what a Spirit-filled Christian looked like. Let me suggest a few, few things quickly and we'll be done. Number one, spirit-filled Christians love creation. They love it because they love the work of the Spirit. 
Spirit-filled Christians delight in living things. They delight in living things because every encounter with living things, and you look at living things and you see these mysterious cycles of living and dying and living again, all of that, that encounter, is an encounter with the active presence of God's ruach. If you think that makes me some weird tree hugger, no, I think that's just acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit. When you are in the forces and life of nature, you are encountering the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's reason why throughout the Bible that is celebrated as something God's children enjoy because all life is a gift of the Spirit. A second thing, Spirit-filled Christians, they look, what, what they look like, they love creation and they value culture. By culture, I just mean human works with God's creation, the stuff that human beings do with the creation. We call it culture. And this is important because it's obvious enough when you look at, you know, plants, animals, various parts of creation, you can say, yes, that's all good. But you look at humans and there's so much sin. Can you really value what human beings do when they don't worship God and they're living in terribly immoral ways? The answer is yes, because while on one hand, idolatry and immorality should horrify us, should probably horrify us more than they do, no other than John Calvin. Now, John Calvin, if the caricatures are to be believed, could smell human depravity a thousand miles away. You picture him as this kind of sallow, frustrated Genevan, writing crankily about the depravity of man. You know what he said about sinners who don't worship God? He said, the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts, unquote. And he calls those gifts, gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he actually kind of rebukes Christians for not being ready to receive those gifts. And he's talking, he says, about things like the work of jurists and philosophers and rhetoricians and doctors and scientists. I don't know if Silicon Valley would have made his list but we should rejoice in the gifts of the Spirit through sinners. And that, beloved, is part of what enables us as God's holy people to have a cheerful thankfulness even as we live in a world that is full of sin. We value culture because it's a gift of the Spirit. They love creation, they value culture. Thirdly, and no surprise, Spirit-filled Christians focus on Christ. I don't know if there is any word more misunderstood in 2023 than the word spirituality. When we think about being spiritual, how often have you heard someone say, I'm not religious, I'm just kind of spiritual, right? Well, outside the church, you know what that word spiritual means? Spirituality outside the church is basically all about self. Because to be spiritual means you don't follow institutions, you don't follow traditions, you don't follow dogmas. What you follow is your own deepest intuitions. I'm spiritual, which basically means it's all about you. And inside the church, spirituality, being spiritual, very often becomes a quest for what Fred Sanders calls high spirits. <laughs> this was my world growing up. Being spiritual meant you're, you're trying to have this high spirits experience. They're, you're just kind of chasing these big new revelations that God is bringing forth and these new experiences, just kind of trying to reach this place of kind of a, an extended spiritual high, which really amounts to just kind of an extended emotional high. 
Again, a false, kind of a false quest in spirituality. Jesus says here in John, verse 14, he says, the spirit is going to glorify me. That's what the spirit does. And you are never more spiritual in the capital S sense than when your heart and your mind are focused, not on your own intuitions, not on some spiritual high spirits. They're focused on God's presence and his provisions and his promises and his purposes that have been wonderfully open to us through Jesus, who is the Christ. And you're just thinking about Jesus as prophet, priest, king, Messiah, Lord, and the Father's love through him. And you just turn toward all of that. That is what the Spirit does. Spirit-filled Christians are focused on Christ. And finally, Spirit-filled Christians, you can know them by this, Mark. They build up the church. If you're Spirit-filled, you want to be invested where the Spirit is moving. Where is the Spirit moving right now? The Spirit is moving in the body of Christ. And so for, if you're Spirit-filled, I don't really care if you like these people. Jesus' people are your people. And this community of Jesus' people and the witness of the Jesus' people in the world as they go forth with gospel truth but also gospel love that outward movement of that centrifugal movement of the church as the Spirit fills us and makes us love people the way God has loved us, that community and its witness, that is going to be the central investment of your life if you're Spirit-filled. You will love that because that's where the Spirit is active. Paul says that we should be filled with the Spirit, and he says Spirit-filled saints do two things. They sing to each other, be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as the Word of Christ dwells in you richly, and they submit to each other. So one sign of a Spirit-filled church, get together and sing. Just sing out the glories of the Lord and submit yourselves to each other. You know what that means? You must not be isolated. You must not be an individualist. For Jesus' sake, in the Holy Spirit, you must get together and open yourselves to actual accountability to one another so you can pray for one another and you can help one another and you can even at times rebuke one another. And I will say, there's been a lot more of this stuff going on at Trinity recently and that is a wonderful thing because it means the Holy Spirit is moving. He's moving. Well, next week, the Holy Spirit has spoken to the prophets. That'll be a handful. But for now, our Father, we ask you to move on us by the Spirit, that even as we give tithes and offerings and finish up this worship service, Lord, we will worship in spirit and in truth. In Jesus we pray. Amen.